Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace, an all-in-one platform that makes it simple for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. At Squarespace, you'll find a wide array of customizable designs with over 20 templates to choose from and a variety of style options so you can make your site look exactly how you want it to look. Squarespace is easy to use. It's fast. It's efficient. It's clear. But uh, hey, if for some reason you need a little help, Squarespace has an amazing support team on hand available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And guess what? These people work in an office that has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. You know this. It's legendary. This is what it's called. It's called the Care Bear Lair. You can call these people and they will help you. Packages start at just 8 bucks a month and you can get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience. It will match the overall style of your website so your content will always look spectacular on every device every time. So come on, ladies and gentlemen, what are you waiting for? Start a trial right now with no credit card required and start building your website. Visit squarespace.com. And when you sign up at Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code other 10. Once again, that offer code is other 10. You do that, you get 10% off. And uh, it's also a terrific way to show your support for this program. So come on guys, go to squarespace.com and take advantage of this deal. It is available right now and it's an excellent way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. So go and create one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, they did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two writers in conversation. This is something you can enjoy on public transportation. Thank you for being here. I'm Brad Listy. And I'm sitting, as usual, in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're feeling well. My guest today is Carrie Luna. Her debut novel, uh, entitled The Revolution of Every Day, is now available from Tin House. I'm going to be talking with her in just a moment. 
So uh, please prepare yourselves for that experience. Uh, otherwise, I'm just wrapping up the J.D. Salinger biography that's just out. I've been reading that. The one by Shane Salerno and David Shields. It's called Salinger. And uh, it is the companion volume to the big Salinger documentary film that is currently out in theaters. And, uh, you know, it's a fascinating story. It's very depressing, as author biographies tend to be. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's somewhat distressing. I have to be honest. I feel, I feel normal after reading it. I feel healthy and well-adjusted and fortunate. Um, J.D. Salinger, you know, a man of contradictions, very lucky in a lot of ways. He led a very charmed life, broadly speaking. You know, rich kid from Park Avenue, uh, went to all the best schools, uh, you know, and then was also the possessor of an unbelievable writing talent. But the thing that I did not know in detail before reading this book was that uh, he had a combat experience in World War II that was, you know, arguable, uh, arguably like the worst combat experience you could possibly have as a human being <laughs> without dying or being uh, physically maimed in some way. Like in the history of the world, it was it was genuinely among the worst combat experiences you could have. Like D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge, the Hurtgen Forest, the horrendous. And it shaped the rest of his life, you know, in no small way. But uh, what's, what's fascinating is that it was a, a very short period of time, relatively speaking. You know, in the broader context of his life. He was in the war for about a year, and it was uh, hell on earth. But aside from that, he had it really good. He had it unusually good at every other time in his life. You know, from the perspective of uh, comfort and privilege. You know, he was publishing stories in uh, major magazines, or at least major uh, literary magazines, before he even went into the war. He was publishing in The New Yorker when he was in, in his 20s. Uh, then he wrote The Catcher in the Rye, and the rest is history. Never had to worry about money. And uh, he lived on a mountain and did uh, pretty much exactly what he wanted to do. So, you know, it's an unusual life and an unusual uh, writing life. And it, to me, it just, it just strikes me as being an odd sandwich. Like you have the first 25 years... Uh, of his life, which are essentially, you know, which is essentially a life of privilege and comfort. And then you have this one utterly horrendous year of uh, soul crushing human combat that ends with the, uh, the liberation of a concentration camp. I forgot to mention that. So it's like D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge, and then like for a closing move, you liberate a concentration camp. And then you come home and you have another 65 years of uh, privilege and comfort, uh, sullied, I should add, by post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, sexual dysfunction, and uh, increasing paranoia. 
So anyway, I'm trying to get Shane to come on the show. I've already had David Shields on. Uh, I've actually had him on twice. And I want to talk to Shane about Salinger, and I'm trying to work it out. So hopefully that'll happen, and uh, that episode will be rolling out soon. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Carrie Luna. Her debut novel, The Revolution of Every Day, is now available from Tin House. Uh, very excited to have her here, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Carrie Luna, and her debut novel, once again, is called The Revolution of Every Day. Well, we had our first kid. Uh, our son was born. He's seven now, and um, we just couldn't make New York work financially anymore. We were going broke. And um, it was a question. We knew we had to leave New York. It was a question of where to go. And my husband was born and raised in New York. I was born there. I grew up in New Jersey and uh, moved back as soon as I could. And um, But he had gone to college out here in Portland. He'd gone to Reed and stayed for 10 years. And so Portland was kind of his second hometown. And we had a support system built in here with friends from back then. So it seemed like the obvious place to go. Okay, so are you? Okay. Do you like it? I mean, have you adjusted? Do you consider it home, or do you still like have one eye on the East Coast? I love it. It's a wonderful place to live. It's a much better place to raise a family than New York, um, but it does. And it feels like a great place to live. I'm very happy to be here, but it doesn't feel like home in the way that New York feels like home. And I think simply because I, I didn't grow up here, I didn't spend my childhood here, I didn't spend my twenties here. I moved here at um, how old I was, was I 33? Yeah, 34. Um, so I don't think I'm ever going to feel quite the same connection for Portland that I do for New York. Maybe that'll change. But when I go back to visit New York now, it, it still feels like home. Okay. And how many, and you said you have one kid or you have multiple children? We've got two. I've got a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. Okay. And I, you know, I was looking at your website and I noticed that you do a series of interviews uh, called Writers with Kids and even Writer with Fetus. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that's, I mean, that's interesting because I think that it's an issue that touches a lot of writers, uh, especially writers in their 30s, you know, who are going through that period of their lives where they have children and have to like try to figure out how to make the two interests fit together which and they can often be at odds because kids take a lot of time yeah. and they take a lot of energy um so i'm interested in knowing how the, you know how you've managed to navigate that period 
Well, it gets easier as they get older and they're in school, uh, but still the, the balance can feel almost impossible sometimes. And you have to choose, at least I find I have to choose between the work and sleep and sleep loses out more often than it probably should. Yeah. I feel like, you know, uh-huh. I, I've, I've gotten, I, I mean, I go through like very regular kind of compressed cycles, you know, where I get super, super exhausted. And then for like two or three days, I'll just sleep or, you know, not all day or anything, but you know, I'll just, I'll go to bed early. <laughs> I'll go to bed early. I'll, uh-huh. wake, I'll wake up later than usual and I'll be sort of catching up. But, um, the older that I get, the harder, well, how do you get the luxury to wake up later than usual though? You've got kid, right? Well, I mean, you know, I, I just don't set the alarm for like five, you know, I'll, I'll just kind of let my, okay. Daughter, I'll, okay. I'll let my daughter run in and jump on me, <laughs> which is, uh-huh. I, I don't okay. know, which, I don't know which is worse, <laughs> the alarm or the jump, you know, the jump down. <laughs> But, you know, you know uh-huh. what I'm saying? Like, I kind of like, I eventually have to sort of wave the white flag and get some rest because I start to just be useless, you know, uh, mentally. Yeah, yeah. And I find that the older I get, the you know, the more I need sleep. I think when I was younger, I could, you know, I think that's probably the, the way it is for most people. But um, yeah. can you do work? I mean, can you can you be exhausted and produce good writing, do you think? I think I'm good for about a four or five day stretches, like four or five hour nights, and then I start to get sloppy. Um, I used to only be able to write from like such a luxury, from like uh, ten in the ten in the morning to like three in the afternoon. That was my prime hours. And once I had kids, that was completely out the window, and I had to kind of retrain myself to be able to write at night at all. Um, but now I can go till. Uh, probably 10 at night till two in the morning once everybody's asleep. Oh my God. Okay. Um, okay, wait, for so, a good, so that, <laughs> yeah. that, that's when you're doing it. 10, 10 PM till 2 AM. Yeah. For the most part, I'm also working. My daughter's now in preschool three days a week and my son's in, in second grade full time. Uh, so I get the time that they're in school, but those days go so fast. And then, yeah, then I'm writing at night from like 10 to two most nights. Um, and I have to take a break every, you know, five to, to seven days to sleep for a couple of nights or I'm just completely trashed. But the work just doesn't get done otherwise. Right. Okay. So are you caffeinating? Like, are you, are you taking stimulants? <laughs> no. You know, here's actually another thing that the children have robbed from me. Um, after my son was born, I lost the ability to uh, metabolize caffeine. It gives me really, really intense, like, call an ambulance panic attacks. So, um, I drink a whole lot of decaf and tell myself it's coffee and just kind of power through. So wait, caffeine gives you panic attacks now? Yeah. Yeah. Ever since my son was born. Why is really that? bad panic attacks. Why is that? Do you have any idea what the connection is? Um, I think I just can't metabolize the caffeine anymore. My body reads it as, I don't know what, um, I just, I just can't handle it. Even tea, uh, if I drink, if I eat too much dark chocolate, it sets me off. Oh my God. You're yeah. describing, you're describing my like entire life's intake. That's all I do. <laughs> I should be. Having- it, was, it was a hard transition. It felt like death for a while. Yeah. You, 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 you do what you have to do though. But like, okay. So pri- and prior to your son being born, you could drink loads of coffee and eat dark chocolate without a problem. Yeah, I've seen amounts of both. Absolutely. That's how I got through my MFA. Wow. Okay. So that's strange. Then, I mean, having ch- having children that like it, it is a biological shift. You know, it does things. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. Yeah, that's the thing they don't tell you before they have them. They kind of trash you. <laughs> right. But they, <laughs> but they bring so much joy. Oh, it's so worth it. It's absolutely worth it. But yeah, there, there, there's an impact. Okay. So you said you were born and raised, uh, did you say Jersey? Um, I was born in, uh, in Manhattan in Stuyvesant town and we lived there until I was five. And then, uh, my dad got a better job in New Jersey. So I was forcibly to New Jersey. Um, like where, where, in, where in Jersey? Uh, Monmouth County, Manalton. Town, we're known as the town to freehold where Bruce Springsteen's from. Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah. All right. So, and did you, I mean, you, you said your father got a job out there. Was he, were either of your parents in the arts or was this, uh, are you? My mother's a visual artist. Yeah. Oh, she is. My a... father was, he, my father was a biochemist. Um, my mom is a visual artist. Okay. She's, uh, yeah, she's a painter and a graphic designer by, by trade. Okay, well, I just talked. You know, I just talked to Jonathan Lethem, and his father's a painter. So uh, maybe there's some sort yeah. of maybe there's some sort of pattern here, where if you have a, a parent who is in the visual arts, uh, you can sort of follow in their footsteps, while at the same time, you know, carving out your own territory. Your own thing that might be. Uh, my father actually was allegedly a poet when he was younger, and um, when I was in high school, I asked him why he stopped writing, and he said, "Well, I grew up," which is the most awesome. Uh, it's the saddest thing he ever said to me, I think. So I think he was a frustrated writer, but he did. <laughs> it's nothing he ever, he ever talked about directly, but I have no suspicion about him. Oh, wow. So, okay. And then uh, do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have a younger brother. He's still in New Jersey with his family. Okay. And he, is he an artist? He's a cop and a former Marine and a SWAT team sniper. Okay, so he's not. <laughs> no, he's, he's the kid who wanted to be a superhero and then grew up and tried to get close to that as possible. I think my bro my brother in law is kind of like that. Like he's like always he works on like water patrol and it's like rescuing people and like fishing people. Up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like that sort of thing. And he, and he was like the kid I think growing up who had like Chinese stars and like nunchucks and stuff like that. Yes, yes, that was that was Joel. Yeah, we had no guns allowed in the house. And uh, toy guns until the day that uh, my brother ate his butter and jelly sandwich into the shape of a handgun, and then my mom just gave up. He, and he, uh, what he made toy his, guns. He made his peanut. He was like five, and he he bit the shape. That he he kept like biting it until it was the shape of a gun. Oh my god! So um, they, like deliberately making it. Yeah, it's just who he is. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's so strange to me, and like a little bit terrifying when you think about kids and especially <laughs> especially little boys and how like you know obviously they're getting it from somewhere but it almost seems like without any provocation or instruction they just start making the tools of war <laughs> you know? they, they really do i mean yeah you, when my son was two years old the first time he picked up a stick his impulse was to hit something with it um the little girls he was playing with did not have quite the same impulse you know they they weren't all that interested in the sticks at all, actually. Oh, it's it's sort of grimly fascinating. And uh, I want to shift gears a little bit, actually. And I want to ask you about your writing life and uh, its history. In particular, I want to know when you started to self-identify as a writer, uh, when you started to actually sit down and attempt to write fiction and write creatively. Was this in high school, uh, college, after college? When did it start for you? Uh, well, I went to an arts high school as a writing major, um, but I mostly 
not even mostly, I just I considered myself a poet and uh, I only wrote fiction under duress because the teacher in the writing program said that you could never make a living as a poet, so you have to write fiction if it's all that easy to make a living writing fiction. <laughs> so I would write stories. <laughs> it makes no sense. Um, I would write stories just to appease her and then spend the rest of the time writing poetry. And so what was and this, what was this high got, school? Was this like the high school of the arts or whatever in New York? No, no. This I was in Jersey by this time. This was Freehold Regional High School District Fine and Performing Arts Center. It drew from, there were five high schools in the district and you would audition in your discipline to get in. And then, so we would spend the morning in our homeschool doing, um, you know, English, math, science. And then uh, for the second half of the day, we'd get on the bus and we'd get bussed over to the art center and take classes in our, in our discipline there. That sounds awesome. It was fantastic. It saved my life. I was miserable in high school until that was junior and senior, junior and senior years in high school. I did that. Okay. So were you, I mean, and, uh, you said you were miserable in high school? Yeah, I was. I was. I wasn't happy in the suburbs. And, uh, and it, it was the usual, you know, suburban punk kid not quite fitting in with, with the jock situation. Okay. Not so, all that unusual. Yeah. Well, so what is suburban? Like, like black boots? Like, what was your, what was your gear? <laughs> well, this was, uh, I graduated from high school in 91. So, um, yeah, it was, it was the black combat boots and, uh, old man's suit pants cut into shorts and, and thigh high fishnets and, you know, purple hair kind of deal. Okay. Way too much black eyeliner, that kind of thing. So, but that's uh, that sounds authentic. It sounds official. Like I, you know, my rebellion, oh, I... my my <laughs> my aesthetic rebellion was either just a, I don't know, just not nearly as uh, thorough and and at its peak, I think significantly uglier. <laughs> <laughs> I was wearing, you know, I was like long hair and flannel pants. It was just wasn't a good look. So flannel pants. Yeah, just you know, just just bad decisions all the way around. <laughs> With no, with no real like, with no real like undergirding of like thought or you know, there's no, there's nothing really holding it together. It was just me. Well, see, that's cooler in a way because I was definitely wearing a uniform. Well, yeah, you know, I guess so. That's the thing about. I mean, and I sort of was too because you have to realize that when I was doing this, I was in Boulder, which is so I was looking like half the people in the town. You know, particularly people uh -huh. my age. So. That's but you felt different, so I, I did. You feel like you're acting out, but you're really just, uh, you know, part of a tribe. Essentially, it's just <laughs> the the, yeah. ir the irony of acting out at that age. Um, so okay, so writing uh, in high school, at, like at a you know, at an arts specific high school, um, do you feel like that gave you better, uh, like a better foundation, better training than most? Um, the arts high school mostly just kept me happy. What really made a huge impact was um, the summers before my junior and senior years in high school, I went to a program called New Jersey Summer Arts Institute, which sadly no longer exists. Um, it was a state program. It was uh, a, residence, a residency program uh, held at Rutgers, and there was dance, theater, uh, instrumental music, vocals, writing, and something called intra-arts, which was basically performance art. You would audition in your discipline and then spend five weeks at Rutgers uh, taking, I think it was like 
eight hours of classes a day in your discipline and living with other kids who are also really serious about their art. And you're taking classes from artists and uh, residence advisors were all college age or grad school level artists. And it's just an absolutely incredible experience. And it was there that I feel like I got permission to be a writer. Like it was okay to want to pursue that and to take it seriously. Our, our teacher um, for those two years that I was there was a poet named Jim Hamblin. And he would uh, take off his shoes and run around the classroom as we did free rights. We just did a ton of free rights. And he would read various things to us, poetry, fiction, and he would read as we free wrote and he would yell, right, right. And it, we just felt like, you know, I was like, we were 15, 16, 17. And here was this person like giving me permission to just go for it. And, uh, and he was barefooted? that was huge for me. He was barefoot and, and, but with like, you know, dockers and like very proper braided leather belt and polo shirt, but just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he didn't look like a poet, but he very much acted like a poet or at least did for us for what, what we needed to think a poet was. And, uh, that was fantastic. The dockers and the braided leather belt. That's such a, that's such yeah. a look. That's a look in its own right. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So where did you go to college? Or did I went you to, to Bard. You went to Bard. I did. Yeah. Okay. I went to Bard. Writing. Mm-hmm. The whole, still writing, a poet. Still a poet. Writing the whole time. Combat boots. Mm-hmm. Gone at this point? Combat boots. No, no, no. They, they were still there. Okay. Combat boots. Uh yeah, well, the uniform shifted to like mostly just jeans and t-shirts at that point. Got to be a lot of like the punk thing is a lot of work. Right. It's a lot of effort, and uh, and I got busy, so you know the grunge years slipped in, and, and it was easy to just go low effort. But the boots were still there, and uh, yeah, I studied at Bard and uh, worked with uh, the poet Robert Kelly, and. Um, and the translator, William Weaver, when I was at Bard, I started studying Spanish. I'd always wanted to learn it because Jim Hamlin at Summer Arts Institute had read Lorca's um, Romances en Ambulotas, and I felt like he read it in English, and it absolutely blew me away, but I could tell that I was missing something by not reading it in the original. And so when I got to Bard, I started studying Spanish, and... Uh, and then I got to study with William Weaver, who translated Umberto Eco's work. And uh, so I got to work with him on literary translation. So are you fluent in Spanish? I am. You are, to this day. I spent, yeah, I spent my junior year in Madrid and then had an early ill-advised and short-lived marriage to a Colombian man that, that uh, solidified the fluency and gave me a great last name, if nothing else. Right. I was going to say, I was wondering where that came from. So... Um, well, that's cool. At least you got something out of it. You're bilingual. <laughs> <laughs> bilingual. I got a great. See, I was born Carrie Fisher, oh, you and were. I really wanted. Uh, yeah, and I really wanted to get rid of the Princess Leia thing. So, uh, yeah, bad marriage, but I don't have to be Princess Leia anymore. Okay, so wait, you grew up in the '80s and then went to high school and college in the '90s with the name Carrie Fisher. I sure did. So how yeah. much how much Star Wars were you dealing with as a child? Like how often did this come up? Every day. Really? Every damn day. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And she's a yeah. writer. And she's a writer. So I mean, at least. And like- she's a writer. So I didn't have my own name. 
and then so then I I, I met this this Colombian man. He was wonderful. We fell in love. Blah blah blah. Ended. But I got this great name. Finally, I had my own identity. And then I moved to Portland. And I started meeting writers, and every writer I met would say, you know, there's another Carrie Luna here. She's a writer, too. Really? And Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's like, are you fucking kidding me? No, this is unacceptable. But yes, there, she spells her name K-A-R-I. That's, and how, mine that's, is how K-A-R-I. My, that's how my wife spells her name, with K. It's like an, oh, it, the unorthodox. Is I your guess. wife's name Carrie? Uh, yeah. Oh, good name. Wrong spelling. Um... And yeah, so there's another Carrie Luna here, and I heard this for several years, and finally I met her, and she's wonderful, and and we're good friends, and that's you know great. But her YA novel just came out, The Theory of Everything. I feel like you guys should go and, on tour together. Yeah, we're actually trying to figure out something we can do together. It would be fun. That would be hilarious. And then you should yeah. get, and then you should get Carrie Fisher to join you. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, by the way, did you see on HBO, I think it was HBO, the Carrie, uh, Carrie Fisher one woman show where she came out on stage bare, barefoot, just like your, uh, former teacher with the, uh, braided leather belt. Uh, but Carrie Fisher <laughs> comes out on stage barefoot and she seemed like, I, to me, she seemed like she was drunk or just, or on something. Uh, maybe that's just her effect after all the years, but She's, well, she used, she was in recovery. Maybe yeah. Well, let's not start rumors. Yeah, she's. I mean, she's she's a very funny woman, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to like badmouth Carrie Fisher because I think she, I don't know. I, I liked her. I liked the show, and I thought that the show was funny. But that there's a, uh, it's a little crazy, you know. She's a little. She's a. She's a, an eccentric. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. And and like it was sort of funny too because she uh, talks about Star Wars and she owns. I mean, you, you sort of have to own it when you have a role like that, that you just, you cannot escape. Yeah. I, I think you have to have humor about it or it's just going to drive you crazy. So, uh, she talks about it with humor and she plays clips like in this one woman show of, uh, of herself in the, like the, the original star Wars movie, the first one. And I guess, uh-huh. I guess during that time she had been living in England. Uh, I think maybe she was doing a play or she was studying at some theater school. It was essentially like a semester abroad, you know, it was that age. Um, Mm -hmm. because she was very young, but she had adopted in kind of like Madonna or Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, fashion, (laughs) this kind of faux British accent, like as an affectation of youth. And when you watch the star Wars movie, uh, especially that first one, she's totally using it. Like, it's just like this thing she's doing. Oh man. Yeah. Which, you know, never occurred to me that like she talks with a British accent as princess Leia, but that's where it comes from. Uh, I need to go back and rewatch that. Or if maybe you can find that uh, one woman show on Netflix or something. It's pretty funny. Yeah. I'll I'll look for it. Um, okay. So your twenties, you, uh, become fluent in Spanish, marry and divorce a Colombian man, get a great last name. Uh, (laughs) you're fluent in Spanish. You're writing poetry. Uh, you're losing the com. Are the combat boots still with you? <laughs> I, I'm using these. I'm using these as a marker in your life. Like, when, when, when did the combat boots leave you, or have they left you? Um, you know, at this, uh, running alongside the combat boots were always the tree hole uh, Doc Martin Oxfords, and the older I got, the more I gravitated toward those. And so, by the time I'm out of Bard and have uh, moved back into New York, I'm pretty much just wearing the three-hole docks. Okay. And what are you doing in New York during this period, aside from writing? Like, how are you supporting yourself or what's going on? 
um, low-level publishing job. I was, uh, my first job in publishing was, actually my very first job in publishing was as the copy editor for uh, Vanity Press. That was awful. But then I got out of there and then I worked at Putnam Berkeley as an assistant production editor. What does that that mean? What does assistant production editor mean? Uh, It's... Means you're you're assisting to shepherd books from manuscript to bound books. So the production editor and the managing editor manage the process from once the manuscript comes in from an author and the editor has line edited it. Uh, it comes in for copy editing. The production editor is the one who hires the freelance copy editor, sends it out, reviews those copy edits when they come back, sends it to the proofreader, reviews that. Um, manages the whole process until it's a finished book. So are you really, really good at copy editing your own work? I mean, because that seems like a pretty good work experience for somebody who wants to go on to become a writer, uh, you know, a published writer. It's what I still do for money. It is, okay. Because the the book stuff is is wonderful, and it's absolutely my first love and my first job, but it it doesn't pay enough to to send the kid to preschool. So yeah, I'm still a copy editor and proofreader mostly for HarperCollins these days. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, I find, you know, like I'm editing stuff all the time and receiving submissions for uh, the nervous breakdown. And uh, it's amazing to me how many writers, uh, you know, can't copy edit or, or just really, really bad. It's a, you know, it's a, it's, I don't know. I don't want to say the word depressing might be too strong. It's just surprising. (laughs) And maybe people just, you know, I think sometimes people just, you know, they're too close to their own work and they can't see it. But then, you know, I taught composition as well. And, uh, that was depressing. Like freshman level composition courses at a community college. Um, yeah. it's like devastating. <laughs> like people don't, know, <laughs> people don't know anything, you know, about uh, what a comma is. Nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So who taught you? Like when you become a copy editor, like, did you walk in the door having all of that knowledge? Were you like a total grammar nerd or was it something like, you know, someone handed you the Chicago manual of style and said, learn it. That was exactly it. I I just spent a whole lot of time with with Chicago, and every time I had a question, I would stop and look it up in Chicago Manual of Style. And over time, you have to stop and look things up less and less. It just becomes ingrained okay. until there's a new edition of Chicago, and then you've got to learn the changes. And but uh, yeah, I was. Well, I was going to say I'm going to I'm going to nerd out because I feel like th- this is actually like something of a passion of mine. Like I really have like an obsessive compulsive thing about uh, grammar and usage and getting things right and uh it, like it really matters to me. I'm not perfect on it. Yeah. I I just mm-hmm. I, I can't live like if like let me put it to you this way. If I'm out to dinner yeah. and I look on my phone and realize that something I've posted online has like a comma splice in it. Like I will not be able to Uh, enjoy my meal. (laughs) Yeah. 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 When Facebook started to allow us to edit our posts, it's such a wonderful day. Yeah. Okay. So when you, when you go go through a manuscript, okay, somebody gives Mm -hmm. you a novel and they say, we want you to copy edit this. Uh, is there, there has to be like a process that you go through, like a, a set, like series of steps that you go through to assess. Correct. Like, how do you diagnose? Are you just reading it? Do you just read it slowly and go through each thing? Or do you, do you take one pass looking for this set of things? And then on the second pass, you're looking for this set of things. Like, how do you actually get that work done and feel like it's really done? 
I'll do that. I'll do it in stages more with proofreading, but with copy editing, if I read through it too many times, I'm not going to be seeing it clearly anymore. It's the same reason that it's hard to copy edit your own work. You need fresh eyes. So I'll just go through it, start at the beginning, and just go very, very slowly, word by word, letter by letter, uh, go through a sentence, and then stop and look for syntax and, and keep moving. Okay, okay. And the whole while, I'm also, you also have to keep plot points in mind, timeline in mind. You have to take notes on the timeline as you go to make sure that things are are following, uh, that, that something that happens in, in chapter one, if it's referenced in chapter three as being three weeks ago, you need to make sure that it's actually true. Well, right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. I mean, as a writer, it's like there's nothing better than having your work copy edited by someone who's skilled because it, you know, yeah. makes, yeah. You, makes you feel like you're... You're being saved repeatedly. That's true. Yeah, it's a privilege. I got my copy of the manuscript back for Revolution of Every Day, and, and it felt like such an honor to have had somebody else to put that kind of time and attention into my book. You did know? they? Did they? Yeah. Did they find things that you missed? Did you? I mean, did, you must have turned in a pretty pretty pristine manuscript by traditional standards, considering your back. It, it was very clean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very clean. Uh, there were a few queries, but for the most part, yeah, the proofreader hit me a little bit harder, but I, I frankly studied most of that. She and I disagreed on some tense issues. Okay. So you're working in this yeah. capacity in New York, um, you know, all through your 20s. Is that correct? Yeah. And are yeah. You, and but you, you can't actually pay the bills on a, on a, on a production editor. Well, even once I was bumped up production editor. Uh, so I was also freelancing at night. In addition to working all day in publishing, I would I would take home proofreading and copy editing to do at night. Oh my god! Why can't yeah, people, well, why, I mean, you know, I I don't want to. Publishing wanna... doesn't pay a living wage. It's I know just, it never has. It's it's a trust fund kid's job, but who's got a trust fund? You know, right? Not me. But that that's the thing about it. I mean, like you know, it's it's really yeah. like, It's like a playground for privileged people mostly, and then there are people. But who I are... just wanted to work with books, right? You know? Right. Yeah. And so, and some people do, they manage to find a way, but it's like, I think that a lot of people who don't have intimate knowledge of it, look at it and think it's a business just like any other business. And it's really not. I mean, I think there's a lot, right. it, it's just not like most businesses in my experience. <laughs> not that well, I part of the problem is the people who now own the houses think that they're like any other business and don't understand that. They need to be treated differently with the different expectations for profit. Does anybody in public, who in publishing makes a lot of money? Just the people who own the publishing houses? That's it? Like, what, like are, there, are, there jo- are there executive jobs in publishing houses that pay really, really uh, fancy salaries? Or is that sort of a I, misnomer? I, I don't know. I never, I never asked my bosses how much they made. They seem to be doing, <laughs> they seem to be doing okay. Yeah. 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 Never sat, yeah, never, never, never sat them down and asked them to go over the numbers? No, oddly enough. But uh, they seemed to be doing okay. They weren't taking freelance home at night. Yeah. Um, my last job, in, my last in-house job in publishing, actually that's not true, my second to last in-house job in publishing, I was the managing editor for the Complete Idiot's Guides. And uh, at that point, I was doing okay. I, didn't, I still actually was taking some freelance, but didn't have to take quite as much. If, if I weren't living in New York, I probably wouldn't have had to take the freelance. But that was, you know, I was managing a team of seven people and only at that point starting to, to earn enough to really get by without the freelance. So. Oh, my God. And all this time you're writing poetry or are you trying to write fiction? 
you know, that was actually one of the really bad things about about going into publishing was the first five years that I was in publishing, I barely wrote a word because I was so depressed by what was getting published and what wasn't and what was selling well. And I just, I couldn't write. So were you like, were you clinically depressed or were you just like, like, uh, you know, I think I was depressed with a lowercase D Okay. and, um, with, with some, you know, some disillusionment thrown in there and, you know, so I was still writing a little bit, but not nearly as much as, as I had before. And I would have been, if I'd, if I'd written, I would have been happier. So. Okay. So, so then what, what broke you out when you finally got out of there or when you, well, I left, uh, the idiot's guides to try my hand at the dot com thing. Cause this was during the dot com boom. And, um, I took a job with a now defunct branding firm called dirty water integrated as a web producer. And, um, when I wasn't working with books anymore, it made it easier to write. And I started writing poetry again. And then I got, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, no, that's, I mean, that strikes me as interesting. You would think that you would be more inclined to be writing if you are working with books, but it sounded like being too immersed in it was actually detrimental for you. Yeah, it was. It was. And uh, I still have to be kind of careful about what, jobs I'm working on now while I'm writing because I'm I'm also just very impressionable. So whatever I'm reading is is going to affect what I'm writing. And I tend to copy edit a lot of vampire romances and, and that kind of thing that I wouldn't otherwise choose to read. Uh, so I, I kind of need a palate cleanser in between the work and the writing. But yeah, I definitely started writing a lot more once I wasn't working with other people's words all day. Well, I mean, it wears, and, uh, it's like you're, I mean, any day job is going to sap your energy, you know, your mental energy, yeah. the energy that you would pour into writing. But if you're, I mean, I know this, I mean, if, if you're constantly editing and reading other people's stuff and then, you know, you get to the end of the day and you have two hours of free time, you know, the last thing you want to do is look at a bunch of words. <laughs> yeah, but you still got to do it, I know. you know, otherwise yeah. it just doesn't happen. Right. Right. So. What is and a, for a long time, it just wasn't happening, yeah. Okay, so you start working this web job, and then you start writing in the evenings, or? Yeah, and on lunch break, and, and it, it kind of came back obsessively again. I was writing a lot, and then I got laid off along with just about everybody else um, in May of 2001, and uh, split from my husband three weeks later my first husband and basically, basically everything was falling apart. And, uh, and then nine 11 happened and I saw, <laughs> way, yeah, I saw way more that day than I, than I, than any, yeah, it was just, I was there and it was bad. Um, but you were, and you so were, like you everything, were, you were downtown. No, I wasn't at the towers. I was on, I was on the Q train. I was freelancing at Harbor Collins at this point and I lived in Brooklyn and I was crossing the Manhattan bridge on the Q train to go to work uh, and we, I was coming across the river, and there was this huge plume of black smoke. I was like, what the fuck is that? And we get closer and closer, and there's a huge gaping hole in one tower. Both towers were still up at this point. The first plane had just hit. And there's a huge gaping hole in the tower, and and, and uh, the train passed quite close to where, where the towers were, and there were people falling out. And then we were back in the tunnel underground with no explanation for what we'd just seen. 
Oh my God. And by the time, yeah, and by the time I, I uh, changed trains at 34th, word was spreading, and the second plane had hit, and uh, and it was obvious some, <laughs> it was more than just some random accident. Um, so that happened, and I was, you know, freelancing, but had gotten laid off, and my husband had left me, and uh, and everything had basically gone to shit. Oh my right? God. It was a bad, 2001 was a bad year. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, so then the, the lowercase depression kind of amped up to almost a uppercase depression. And I was writing more. And I was like, what the fuck am I going to do now? And there was a book on my bookshelf that I had had for five years because I'd gotten it for free because it was published by a house I'd worked for. But I'd never opened it because I already knew what it said. And it was the artist's way. And I'm about to plug a self-help book. I can't believe it. Um, <laughs> I've, read, I've read the artist's way. I was I was doing my daily journaling when I was in my 20s. Yeah. So I was like, I didn't know what the hell to do. And I started working through the artist's way. And uh, I realized that I'd always wanted to be a novelist. I'd always wanted to write fiction. But fiction was something that grown-ups do in my mind. And I was waiting to be a grown up to write fiction. And I was, how old was I at this point? 27. So, uh, that was bullshit, obviously. So I started to write fiction instead. And well, in addition to the poetry and everything that had frustrated me about poetry turned out to be a strength in fiction. My voice is just much better suited to fiction than to poetry. So what frustrated, and, what frustrated you about poetry? Uh, lack of space more than anything else, I think. And I just, I have a more, I need narrative. I want narrative uh, in a way that I didn't personally find room for in poetry or wasn't able to pull off in poetry. And okay. So here's like a, here's a question that I should probably ask more writers who I talk to on this show. Um, do you have a sense of why you write fiction? And I guess maybe yeah. like if you wanted to talk about, uh, you know, this book specifically, The Revolution of Every Day, like, do you have a sense of why you wrote it or why you needed to write it? Yeah, I do. I do, actually. Um, I don't really understand what I think about anything until I've written about it, even if it's just writing it down for myself. So I write to answer questions for myself. And... um I sat down to write The Revolution of Every Day in 2005. I wanted to understand what had happened in New York, like why my city had changed. It, gentrification had... I used to live in the East Village and got priced out of there and moved to Brooklyn. And I no longer recognized my old neighborhood, which is completely changed by, by gentrification. And I wanted to understand that. And... Uh, what happened? So, well... That's actually how I got to the squatter thing. When I was living there in um, July 4th of 95, I was walking through the neighborhood and I saw a huge commotion on, at the intersection of 13th and A at night. And I went to check it out and the intersection was completely choked with police and riot gear. Um, there were mounted police. They were like bystanders in like people that, protest signs and then I looked and there were uh, there were squatters retaking a building that had been evicted a few months before and they hung a sign and then they, they got out of there and the police were responding to that 
And um, so I, I, that made an impression on me, not enough of an impression that I actually investigated further at the time. I saw some things on the news and kind of filed it away. But when I sat down to write this book, I remembered that night and I started to research more and I found out that on May 30th of 95, that building and the one next to it had been cleared by uh, SWAT teams, riot police, snipers, and an armored tank. Uh, they rolled a tank down East 13th Street to evict 60 squatters from two buildings. A lot of them had lived there for more than 10 years. They had yeah. rehabilitated these, these abandoned buildings that uh, were city-owned that the city hadn't wanted. <laughs> they were just, they were warehousing these empty buildings and people moved in and made them homes and lived there for 10 years and really fixed them up. And then, then real estate in the village was suddenly valuable. And so the city turned their eye toward these squatters and wanted them out. They spent a million dollars that day to evict these squatters. Wow. And uh, yeah. And so what was happening on that July 4th that I witnessed was a group of these squatters while everybody was distracted by the fireworks, they retook one of those buildings and hung signs that said home sweet home. And then they got out of there before they could be arrested. It was just symbolic. I knew they couldn't really take the building back. Uh, but I remember that and, and started to do the research and it seemed like that eviction on May 30th, that, that massive show of, of, of force and so militaristic, it seemed like the turning point uh, where money kind of won out in New York. Well, I I think about, I mean, I think about, that was Giuliani's mayorship, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure was. When he was mayor, I mean, Times Square got Disneyfied. I mean, that was really, Mm -hmm. you know, that was really when all of that stuff happened. And like homeless people kind of just like yanked off the streets and uh, Mm -hmm. it was a, you know, it's a rough time. So did you come to any, or like I said, a rough time for, those without resources. Uh, did you, right. did you come to any conclusions? Um, I mean, I guess you said money won out. I mean, it, it seems like, you know, people in the arts at least don't have the option of living in Manhattan unless they're financed or unless they have some sort of stream of income, you know, coming from a significant other or from their parents or whatever it is. I mean, it's, it seems rare. Yeah. It seems more and more unusual that artists are able to live in Manhattan. Um, you know, do do you see it ever getting better, or do you think that this is just the new reality? And it's hard to say. I mean, New York really has been made, has been remade for the super rich. And no, I I don't know personally know anybody who who can survive as an artist in Manhattan anymore. I no longer have any friends in Manhattan. They're all in Brooklyn or Queens, or have had to leave the area entirely. And if the city become so expensive that, that artists can't afford to, to live and work there. If you're spending all of your energy just trying to get by and don't have any leftover for your art, I don't know what becomes to a, becomes of a city well, yeah, I mean, it's like, like that. It's, but, it's, yeah. it's, cultural, it's cultural life is going to be pretty de, you know, depleted, I would think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's what's happening. Okay, so not to get too political, but what about Bill de Blasio? <laughs> Does he instill any hope? I mean, he seems like he might be sympathetic to the artist's uh, cause and to the... I mean, his wife is a poet, right? He, like, doesn't doesn't that maybe augur well for the uh, the cultural life of New York I, City? I think he would definitely be a wonderful step in the right direction. And if I were still allowed to vote there, that's that's where my vote would be going. Yeah. Okay. So, 
Um, all right. So when did you start working on this book? This is your debut, right? This novel? It's not my first novel, but it's my first published novel. So yeah, it's my debut. Okay. Um, my first novel lives quietly in my former agent's drawer and <laughs> it's exactly the right place for it. Right, right. That was my, my thinly veiled autobiographical first novel, which everybody needs to write, but I have the privilege of not having to have it read. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I called? started, what was it called? This, uh, this it, d- discard, it was called, it was called drowning practice Drown- and I, Drowning, drowning practice and oh, okay. drowning practice. Yes. And I have the first line tattooed on my leg. Just to be clear, you said drowning with a D yeah. as in David or browning? Would... Drown, dr- drowning with a D as in swimming and then failing to swim. Yeah. Dr- drowning practice. And then, so what is this first line that is tattooed on your leg? Well, the thing is, I woke up with this first line and I was so fucking grandiose in my MSA days. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> I woke up with this first line in my head one morning. It was, each night Tansy would practice drowning. It's like, well, first of all, what the hell kind of name is Tansy? But so I woke up and this was still in my morning pages, artistry days. And I sat down at my desk and I did, you know, my morning pages starting with that first line. And it was this free write that became the first chapter of what I thought, I thought it was going to be a short story and then kept opening up and opening up and became a novel. So the line each night, Tansy would practice drowning is tattooed on my leg in my own handwriting. Oh my God. That's, that's pretty heavy. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) you said you were grandiose in your MFA days. You got your MFA at Brooklyn college. I did. Okay. So we kind of missed that part, but you were writing this early novel while you were getting your MFA and you were also getting tattoos. <laughs> Collecting tattoos and, and MFA, yes. Okay, yes. so where, um, where, the novel was my MFA thesis. Okay, and where on your leg is this tattoo? Is this like a shin thing, or it's it's um, vertical on the outside of my of my right calf, okay, um, or and I guess between the calf and the shin, it's on the side of my leg, and yeah, it goes down the side of my leg. What is your relationship to this tattoo? Do you have like a like a warm relationship with it, or is it something that you think you might one day get removed if you? I'll never get any of my tattoos removed. They, you know, each one they're they're like passport stamps, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, each one reminds me of who and 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 where I was when I got it. And the idea behind this tattoo at the time was, um, I finished the novel. I graduated from the MFA program and. I landed this wonderful agent and I was on my way to an artist colony and she was sending the book out and everything was happening. And I had my big MFA ego. I was like, well, here, here we go, you know? And so I got that, t- the tattoo thinking I wanted to mark my commitment to the book, no matter what happened with it. Never once thinking that the book would end up unpublished. And, uh, but I love it. You know, I, I look at the tattoo and it, it just reminds me of that, early hubris, which I guess you have to go through and then get it beaten out of you. (laughs) And I I definitely got it beaten out of me. (laughs) Um, So how did you respond? I mean, I know that now you have some perspective and, you know, we can laugh about it or whatever, but like at the time when the book failed to find a publisher, um, like where was the D in the depression? Was it italicized, capitalized? (laughs) Was it small? Like how did you handle that moment? Oh, man, that was rough. Well, you know, my agent shopped it around for two years. And uh, while she was shopping it around, I was writing Revolution. So at least I was already thoroughly invested in 
in another project. And I really believed in, in Revolution of Every Day. And so there was that. Um, but, you know, it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. But I'd, I'd say the depression, it was lowercase, but, but some italics for sure. Well, and, but, yeah. okay. And, but it, you didn't lose the will to continue, you know, which I think some, yeah. writer, some writers might, you know, have that experience and be like, okay, I've been through all this. I got my MFA. I wrote the, in, this entire freaking book. And like, you know, if, it, if it's not <laughs> working, but you, but you didn't do it. You kept, you kept working and you, and you continue to work. Yeah. Like, has there been a break since you, you know, left your publishing job in your mid twenties and got into this other, you know, dot com job, like that's real. It sounds like that's really when you started working consistently. Um, yeah. Have you been pretty consistent ever since then? Has there have there been any spells uh, where you've lost the urge or the energy to write? Never lost the urge, but I'd say the first six months after each kid was born, I just didn't have the energy at the time. Well, yeah, that's, I almost think that, yeah. that, that doesn't count. <laughs> it was maternity leave. Apart from, apart from maternity leave, I have, I have not taken a break, nor have I wanted to. No, it keeps me sane. I'm, I'm absolutely impossible to live with if I'm not writing. Okay, and so, are you, so I take it you're working on something new? I am. Okay, so I yeah. won't I won't ask you to delve uh, into plot synopsis with it or anything like that because you know who knows mm -hmm. where you, who knows where you are with it. But um, to go back to an early earlier question, I asked you about why you write, um, and you know your response involving questions. Um, mm -hmm. What what question is plaguing you with this one? Like, what are you what question are you currently trying to answer? Yeah, the difference between um, online and real life identity. I don't, I don't know how that's relevant to anyone's life these days. <laughs> it's not, but again, it's something that's nagging at me a little. I'm sorry. I was, try, I was trying deadpan. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So do you spend a lot of time online? I do. I do. I really, really love Twitter. You know, I've got two young kids and I'm a writer and both of those things can be really isolating. And so I spend a lot of time on Twitter and I can connect with other humans and with my friends who are still back East and with new friends I've made through Twitter. I love it. But, you know, I, I actually do want to know what everybody's having for lunch. It matters to me. What everybody's <laughs> having for lunch. Do you feel like, I don't know. There's something, I feel like Twitter is less toxic than other social networks. I, I'm a Twitter fan too. Like if I had to pick mm -hmm. one, I mean, I, I sort of have picked one. Um, yeah, me too. I like the Twitter. I don't think that, I think that it's a useful, I also think it's a very useful tool, like from a media news aggregation standpoint, like that's where I read my news is via Twitter. Me too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I find out what's going on on Twitter and then I see what I need to look into further. Right. If I just sit down and read the newspaper, I get overwhelmed and depressed. And okay. So not, so, to, not, yeah, to, I... not to nerd out too bad on Twitter, but like, do you use Twitter? <laughs> do you use Twitter lists? Cause I use Twitter lists like obsessively. I should, um, and I've started to a few times, but it's just so damn time-consuming to set it up because I didn't from the beginning. Right. Um, that no, not really. Okay, I'm just, I'm just wondering yeah. if I'm the only person doing there, it. I don't think you are. I think it's it's a good way to do it. I just haven't gotten my act together on that. So, do you feel like there is, uh, you know, without giving away the game too much with this next thing that you're working on? Do you feel that mm -hmm. there is? a r real uh, definable dissonance between your real life self and your Twitter self? Like, are you, do you, do you, look, do you look at your Twitter feed and say, wow, I'm presenting myself online in a way that is somewhat at odds with who I actually am? 
No, not at all. Actually, my my Twitter feed is very much me. I don't do that at all, but I am aware that it could be done very easily. And that interests me. Like, what if somebody did create a separate persona and a separate life for themselves on Twitter and started, and on social media in general, and started to interact with people, presenting themselves differently as a different person? Who's to know? Mm. And and what what could you do? What, you know, I just I want to play with that a little bit. So it's it's in early stages yet. Okay, and so do but, you, yeah, that interests me. Do you ever have any qualms about like promoting, like with this new book that you have out? Like, do you ever look at, uh, you know, your social media feed and be like, oh god, are people going to hate me if I keep plugging my book? Or do you have no such reservations? I mean, how do you view it from a personal promotion standpoint? I try to to have a light hand with it. I think the best thing about Twitter is that it's it's a conversation. You know, and you're either talking to yourself with people eavesdropping or you're talking to other people. And uh, so I don't like to use it for too much heavy-handed promotion. But, you know, I assume that people are following me because they want to know what's going on. And uh, so, you know, I share. And if I've got some, like, exciting news, I want to share it with my friends. A lot of my friends are on there. I'll post about it. But I try not to just be like promotion, 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 because, you know, who wants to read that? Sure. I don't. Um, yeah. okay. So speaking of excitement and exciting news, mm-hmm. like when, uh, like tell the story of the publication of the revolution of every day, we've already been through, uh, drowning practice, <laughs> which is <laughs> just such a perfect title for like the first novel that wound up in the drawer. It really is. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So you, you write that one and then you start writing the revolution of every day. And this obviously had a different outcome. Like how did that transpire? Um, well, I submitted it to my former agent who represented drowning practice and she was really uncomfortable with it. We went through three rounds of revisions and it's actually, I guess we haven't mentioned this. It's a novel set in New York in the Lower East Side in the mid nineties. And it's about squatters. It's set in a community of squatted buildings. And my agent kept trying to understand it. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman. And I I love her. We were like, you know, Gail Hockman. Okay. Uh, she's she's uh, my MFA mentor, Michael Cunningham's agent, and that's how I met her. And she's absolutely wonderful. But we just we we met at a party at his apartment, and we just really clicked, and we really liked each other, and we were those two good friends who should have never even slept with each other, but we got married. You know, we're just not a great editorial fit. Um, so we went through three rounds of revision. She kept trying to understand it by way of rent and fiddler on the roof. And that's just not going to get you there. Uh, and finally she called it. She's like, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just not your guy for this book. And it was very sad. We were both very sad and we parted ways and she's actually still remained a great support. And I, I turned to her for advice with some regularity and she always comes through for me. Um, what, what just happened? I just, I, I always have something in my hands, like either a rock or I just, I was holding a horse chestnut and I dropped it. What the hell is a horse chestnut? I don't even know what that is. Well, I'll is send it, you one. Is it a chestnut? Is it an actual chestnut? It's a chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> it's a chestnut. They fall from trees in these, these green spiky spheres and then you break open the, the green spiky ball and there's this wonderful smooth brown uh, stone inside and I think they're called buckeyes. In other states, okay, and you just and they're just wonderful. They're just smooth and yeah. I just I like to 
have something in my hands. So you just keep some, keep some horse chestnuts around the house? <laughs> we actually, there's a basket of them on the, on the couch right now because my husband and kids went and collected them last night. But I also have a bowl of them on my desk, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I want to actually, uh, ask a couple more questions about this agent transition because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's traumatic. Your agent is really, I think like uh, other than maybe your editor, uh, the close and, or perhaps your spouse or some friend who's like your first reader. It's a really intimate relationship creatively. Yeah. Uh, so when that relationship ended, like, how did you find a new agent? I didn't. Well, you know, the thing when drowning practice didn't sell, at least, you know, I, I still in my mind, is like, well, at least I've got Gail. I've got this top shelf agent who believes in my work. It's going to be okay. And then she didn't believe in my next book. And okay. And so uh, I started casting around for a new agent and I spent a year doing that and uh, came close a few times, but nobody wanted to take it on. They didn't see it as being the right book for a big house. And it's not, it's, it's definitely a small press book. And I think that's, in my mind, that's a good thing. Uh, so I started submitting to the independent presses on my own, and Tin House said yes. And it couldn't have worked out better because Tin House is exactly the right press for this book, and my editor, Meg Story, is exactly the right editor for it. And living in Portland, it's just amazing to get to work with Tin House. So, yeah, it's definitely got a happy ending, but I'm unagented. I sold the book by myself. Okay, so when you, how did that happen then you get an email or a phone call and then oh uh with the yes yeah i got an email i got an email with uh we love it we want these revisions before we'll make you an offer they wanted to make sure i had the chops to make the revision because i'm a debut author so i went through a round of revisions for tin house and resubmitted it and then i got the phone call with the yes at at which point you at which point I started to Google uh, contracts to find out how to negotiate for myself. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's interesting. So how much negotiation was involved? I mean, if you're basically operating as your own representation, uh, you know, did you have to go through a protracted negotiation? Was it a pretty simple process? Well, it's a pretty simple process. Tin House is, is a very good-willed place. And having worked in publishing my whole adult life, I understood the, con- I, the contract was not at all hard for me to understand. It was all very familiar and the terms were all very familiar. And so I knew the, what the standards were. I knew boilerplate. I knew from my research and from talking to other friends who were authors, what rights I wanted to retain and what made sense to, to sign away to Tin House. And uh, they sent me the contract. I said, well, I'd like this, this, and this change. They said yes. And that was it. And that was it. The rest is history. That was it. The rest is history. Um, and so, and so far with the book rolling out, uh, have there been any surprises? Like, is it everything that you dreamed it would be? Has there been any letdowns? Like, well, how do you feel about the, the, the book being out in the world at large, as opposed to, you know, on your computer or in your head? Well, the biggest surprise was that it was released about a month early. Uh, we, we had to go to print early because they ran out of galleys, which is a nice problem to have. But once the book was printed, it shipped, and I guess it hit the Amazon warehouse, and Amazon says COGS are in warehouse, therefore we will ship COGS. So all of the pre-orders went out, and then suddenly it was up for sale on Amazon. Um, the original pub date was to be October 15th. 
this happened on September 7th. Like I woke up on Saturday, one Saturday morning, uh, a flood of emails from friends saying they got a notification that the book was on its way to them. So I had thought I had another month and a week to kind of mentally prepare for the book being out in the world. And I was just out. And once Amazon released it, everybody else followed suit. Maybe this isn't exactly what happened. It's my perception of it. All of a sudden it was out. Um, it was on stores. Uh, so the book just, yeah, it's it's just out. But that turned out to be a wonderful surprise because it's just so much fun to have that in the world to get to go to bookstores and see it there. I was gonna say, and I was friends, gonna say, do you ever like do you, do you find yourself like when you pass a bookstore like just popping in to visit your book? Like I used I used to do that. I have to Yeah. I, I have to cop to that. I always like I always likened it to like visiting a patient in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanna go see how he's doing. I just wanna see how he's doing. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. I go, I pet it, I you know, I I greatest thing was going to Powell's to sign stock and um, Kevin Sansel made it a staff tick at the downtown Powell's, which is kind of a dream come true. So I went and I saw my shelf talker and petted the books and signed them. And yeah, that was great. Well, uh, I congratulate you on it. It's very exciting. Thank and you, sir. I, uh, I wish you all the best with this new book. I hope that you get an answer to the question. That is uh, <laughs> you about your, and if you find out the answer, let me know. I mean, please, I need. To, I absolutely will. I need to figure out the difference between my online identity and my actual identity. It's a pressing. I think it's a pressing <laughs> problem for most of us. Um, so, Carrie, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. All right, you guys, there you go. That is Carrie Luna. Go get her book. It's called The Revolution of Every Day. It is available now from Tin House. You can find her online at CarrieLuna.com. And she's also on the Twitter where her handle is at Carrie underscore Luna. Thanks to our sponsor, Squarespace. Be sure to go over to squarespace.com if you need a website or an online portfolio. And when you do that, be sure to enter the promo code OTHER10. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the terrific music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And hey, uh, don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. It is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done it uh, already. The app itself is free. Uh, Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that wherever you are. Where are you? What are you doing right now? If you would like to uh, email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. I like hearing from you guys. And uh, better yet, you can leave me a voice message at the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com. Just click on send voicemail over at the right side of the page. I believe uh, that's it for now. I'm done. I'll be back on Wednesday with another episode, another conversation with another human being uh, who has bookish tendencies. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Carrie Luna. Go get her novel. Thanks to Tin House. Uh, I've got some great shows coming up, so please stay tuned. Stay focused. Remain concentrated. 